0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tau Foundation.
2: It's a certain kind of torture when you live near a beach and can't go there.
3: We just wanna be able to practice our form of exercise, whether it's going for a walk on the beach or run on the beach, going surfing, going swimming.
2: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. As New Hampshire slowly reopens from the coronavirus shutdown, beaches remain closed. And for some students who don't have internet access at home, remote learning is happening in parked cars near Wi-Fi access. I stay in my driver's seat. Um, I push my seat all the way back, and then I prop my crumb book on the steering wheel with like my work on the passenger seat. Plus, a son teaches his mother to play the basketball game Horse during quarantine.
4: All right, H O R to H O R S. What do you think? It's getting close. We're Sca- in the fourth quarter. Are you scared? I am.
5: It's
6: next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for
2: joining us. The country's patchwork approach to reopening states is mirrored in New England. Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Vermont are scheduled to begin loosening restrictions in the coming week. Maine, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire have already begun slowly reopening, allowing things like elective health care procedures and a trip to a drive-in movie theater with safety restrictions. But despite New Hampshire's slow reopen, the public beaches on the seacoast are staying closed. It sparked debate in seaside towns like Rye over what restrictions are warranted. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropik has more.
7: On one of the first warm weekends of spring, the Coastal Route 1A, or Ocean Boulevard, in Rye, New Hampshire, looked almost like nothing unusual was going on. There was a steady crawl of cars with windows down, motorcycles revving their engines, cyclists, and pedestrians on the seawall. Rye Police Chief Kevin Walsh was out patrolling, trying to keep people off the beaches and out of barricaded parking areas.
1: Until people start to follow the mitigation plan, it's not going to be healthy for us to open the beaches.
7: In the past couple months, Walsh says his department has given out more than 260 parking tickets, plus 21 moving violations, and most recently, a handful of trespass notices for people on the sand. He's been especially frustrated to see so many drivers from Massachusetts, which, like New Hampshire, is under a stay-at-home order in an effort to combat the spread of COVID-19.
8: If you're supposed to be sheltering in place and staying in your own neighborhood, please think of somebody else.
7: But not everyone thinks these closures are fair. Eric Cannon is a surfer who lives in nearby Hampton. He says the state should treat the seacoast beaches the same way as its other parks, which are still open.
3: Getting outside and exercising has been listed as an essential activity, you know, throughout this process. We just want to be able to practice our form of exercise, whether it's going for a walk on the beach or run on the beach, going surfing, going swimming. All of those we look at as, you know, Part of the reasons why we chose to live on the seacoast, how is that different than what anyone else is doing?
7: Unlike some surfers, Cannon says he hasn't been breaking parking restrictions to try and catch a wave. He says he supports the parking ban and he can ride his bike from home. He thinks that kind of beach use by locals should be allowed.
3: We do have to stay home. We have to stay in our communities. We have to minimize travel, which is exactly what we want to do.
7: Cannon and hundreds of others have sent a petition and letters to local officials asking them to reopen the beaches for swimmers, surfers, joggers, and walkers. Massachusetts has allowed those uses of its beaches throughout the pandemic, and New Hampshire state park officials have also floated the idea. Rye Police Chief Kevin Walsh thinks that would be too hard to enforce. Same goes for the idea of just opening the beaches to state residents, as will largely be the case at campgrounds and golf courses. Other locals are skeptical too. Lobsterman Mark Tosiano can't imagine how New Hampshire could keep Massachusetts residents away from its beaches.
9: What are you going to do? Put the National Guard at the, at the state border? You know? One, I don't think we can do it. Number two, it, it just tick people off. And eventually we want them to come back when the economy's booming, so they come up here and they spend their money up here
7: in New Hampshire. This kind of economic strain is a big reason the state has begun reopening some businesses. But that's causing even more tension in towns like Rye. On that recent warm weekend, the parking lot was packed at Petey's Summertime Seafood, one of the only local clam shacks that stayed open for takeout. Owner Peter Akins Jr. says they're trying to make patrons wear masks and line up six feet apart. He thinks it should be up to his customers to handle it. He doesn't think the current beach and park enclosures are effective.
10: They got to open up for 1A. People got to park somewhere. They're getting back on the road with, with alcohol to go and food in the car, and they're doing it behind the wheel. It's, it's it's ridiculous.
7: Aikens guesses he's losing hundreds of thousands of dollars running only his to-go window. But at the same time, he knows more visitors from points south are on their way, no matter the restrictions.
10: Memorial Day's coming. After that, you know, it's, it's, it's time. People are coming. It's hard to stop. Hopefully people will stay their distance and everything will be fine.
7: Aikens wants to see the beaches and parking areas reopen. He says his town's economy may depend on it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek.
2: Another summer staple that's still uncertain is sleepaway summer camp. For more than 100 years, kids have flocked to camps around New England to play in the woods, swim in a lake, forge new friendships, and find a bit of freedom from their lives back home. As camp directors plan for possible scenarios, some parents are holding out hope that this formative experience for kids can be preserved, even during a pandemic. Maine Public Radio's Patty White has our story.
11: We've all had to adapt to changes prompted by the new coronavirus wearing masks, quarantines, physical distancing. But how might these changes apply to summer camps? That's something that's cycling through many camp directors' minds, including Peter Slavensky, as he walks on a wooded path on the grounds of Slovensky camps. It's a co-ed camp perched on the shores of Panther Pond and Raymond. The trail ends at a grassy athletic field.
8: This is our field, and we play a lot of great games out here, but uh, social distancing would be really tough in the field games. We have uh, uh, capture the flag where we run and tag kids, and I, I guess we could... Kids could start running, and if you get within six feet of a kid, you're tagged.
11: How to run field games while maintaining social distancing is one of the countless questions that Slovensky asks himself as he considers Governor Janet Mill's four-stage plan to reopen the economy.
8: Our first view of the guidelines is that they're going to be very challenging for a summer camp to open and maybe even uh, impossible.
11: Kids who go to Slovensky camp sign up for one-week sessions, and about half come from out of state. Under Mill's current plan, those campers would need to quarantine for 14 days as soon as they enter Maine. And gatherings of 50 or more people are prohibited throughout the summer. Slovensky says he usually has 100 campers at each session.
8: Very, very few summer camps are small enough to uh, gather only 50 people. You've got uh, staff and campers, so that would be something like a camp of 40 campers and 10 staff members. Uh, The economics of that are really going to be tough.
11: Slovensky isn't the only one who's worried. Ron Hall is the executive director of Maine Summer Camps, which represents more than 140 licensed youth camps in Maine, about 70 percent of which are overnight. He says the camp directors and owners he's spoken to are stressed.
9: They're worried about their campers. They're worried about their finances. They're worried about what's going to happen this summer.
11: Even though camps operate just eight weeks out of the year, they have fixed expenses 12 months of the year. And lost tuitions not only affect camps, but the state. Hall says camps contribute $200 million a year directly and indirectly to the Maine economy. Close to two dozen camps in Maine have already decided not to open for the summer. Some that remain in limbo say demand is still strong. Well, the camp has a full enrollment right now. But in order to open, says Laura Ordway, the co-owner and director of Winona Camps in Bridgeton,
12: Pretty much every aspect of
11: camp will have to change. That is the one thing that is clear right now. Ordway says the biggest challenges most camps face center around one of the hallmarks of the experience, closeness. Kids sit shoulder to shoulder at mealtimes and campfires. They sleep head to foot in tents and cabins. But Ordway says there is a potential workaround to both crowd limits and quarantine requirements. We would have
12: to have clear guidelines from the state that they would allow a residential summer camp to be cohorted as a
11: large group, almost as in in place of a single family home. In other words, the camp would quarantine as a whole once campers arrive. Or maybe in smaller groups, says Andy Lilienthal. He's the owner and director of Camp Winnebago and Fayette. Lilienthal wonders if he could group staff and campers into cohorts of 50 or fewer.
3: So that we could have a group of 50 in a separate area of camp, and they could be working as a unit and not interact with the other campers or staff that would be in another area of camp.
11: It's a summer in which activities would likely be centered at camp. No special day trips to the tidal pools at Pemaquid Point or hikes on Mount Batty. And of course, there would be close monitoring of campers' health. Lillian acknowledges that even if he's able to, opening camp this summer is not a risk-free proposition.
3: And I'm not by nature a risky person. Um, but at the same time, I do understand the importance of what an experience at camp can mean for a child usually.
11: And from what he's hearing from parents, he says, this season is especially important.
3: The general refrain for for me is, please, God, let camp happen. I want you to take my child. They really need camp this summer.
13: The beacon has been camp.
11: Kelly Farrell of New York has a 16-year-old son who's ready to go to camp in Maine this summer. He's a junior in high school, and he's already lost his spring sports, dances, and other events.
0: It's just this light he's been looking
14: forward to. It's providing him sort of inspiration and even the fortitude um, right now to go on. There, it's He's been home since March 12th. He hasn't left the house but to walk the dog or go for a run. And... For him, camp is sort of what's keeping him going right now.
11: Kate Egan of Brunswick is also hoping her teenage son and daughter can go to camp. They've attended Slavensky camps for years, and her daughter is now a counselor. Egan says her kids talk about camp every day.
7: You know, with all the losses that they've kind of wrapped up over the year, losing camp would be one of the hardest.
11: Even if the experience this summer is different, says Egan. On May 7th, Governor Mills said in a news briefing that she can't make any promises, but her administration is trying to find a way for camps to open safely. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patti White. There are the businesses pushing hard
2: to find ways to reopen, and then there are the businesses that are not quite ready. Hair salons are now allowed to operate in Maine and New Hampshire, and Connecticut's not far behind. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano reports, some hairstylists are worried about being too close to customers.
15: Georgian Costa has two kids and works at a salon in Shelton, Connecticut. If she has to go back to the salon, she'll have to leave her kids with her in-laws and maybe expose them to what she brings home from work.
14: They are both over the age of 65 and they are both health compromised. I cannot leave work, go pick up my children from my in-laws. This is putting so many people at risk.
15: DaCosta says she's not willing to do that.
14: The people that are making these decisions, Governor Lamont should be choosing humanity over vanity. We do not belong
15: in phase one. Governor Ned Lamont says he's asked salons and barbershops in Connecticut to take precautions upon reopening on May 20th, like requiring appointments and making sure workstations are at least six feet apart and he wants workers and customers to wear masks. I think those were sort of reasons we thought these were baby steps he wanted to take, including the salons. But hairstylists work in a business where physical distancing isn't possible. Sierra Del Gigante is a stylist in Danbury, Connecticut.
6: Even if we have masks, gloves, and the face shields, that's not preventing anyone from getting sick. God forbid we have a client that coughs, or God forbid there's someone in the salon that's asymptomatic. You never know, regardless of the protective equipment or not, we're still literally on top of the clients for, you know, it could be up to two hours, depending on what we're doing.
15: Del Gigante also has to worry about the stepmom she lives with. She says her stepmother has a heart condition that puts her at a high risk. By going back in the first phase, Del Gigante says some stylists feel like guinea pigs in a test trial. It's just risking our health and everyone's health around us. In fact, it looks as if Connecticut is relaxing the rules further on salons. The state initially said that blow dryers would be banned upon the May 20th reopen date for fear they'd spread COVID-19. But this past Monday, the state gave stylists and barbers the green light to use them. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Frankie Graziano.
2: In recent weeks, we've heard from lots of business owners trying to get a lifeline through the federal government's Paycheck Protection Program. Today, we hear from some bankers. WBUR's Adrian Ma spoke with employees at Brookline Bank in Massachusetts to understand how their jobs have changed as they rush to get the emergency loans to small businesses in need.
16: Since the Paycheck Protection Program started a month ago, Lindsay St. Pierre has been living and breathing PPP loans.
17: Uh, It's been a roller coaster, to be totally honest, because it really had a bit of a shaky start.
16: St. Pierre is a business banking officer at Brookline Bank, so she's often the first person business owners go to when they want a loan. She answers their questions, helps them fill out paperwork.
17: So it sounds simple, but When you have, you know, a couple hundred at a time coming in at the same day, (laughs) it's not. I think I looked at one point in 30 days, I sent like 1,800 emails. It was crazy. It's just so much back and forth. I'm like, I think I'm getting arthritis in my fingers just from (laughs) from typing all day long.
16: Have you ever had to work this much before?
17: Not like this. It's more, it's strange because it's mentally draining, especially when we're really racing against the clock to make sure these people get their funding. It's, if I drop the ball on one, that's a whole business that could potentially go under.
16: She says it is a lot to carry on her shoulders, especially because she's carrying something else. She's pregnant.
17: I'm due in 10 days, so.
16: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Even so, she says she has been working about 14 hours a day lately, and a lot of her colleagues are in the same boat.
15: Um, It's gotten crazy. It's gotten really crazy.
16: Kevin Noyes is a vice president for this small Massachusetts bank, which has processed more than 1,100 loans so far. Unlike a lot of his employees, he is still going into the office. And despite the craziness, he gives off a vibe that might be best described as relentlessly cheerful. Like, he often ends his sentences with an affirming, yep, yep.
3: Um, I got up at 5.30. Yeah. And I was here by uh, between 6.30 and 7.
16: Yep. Yep. Now, every PPP loan request has to go to the U.S. Small Business Administration for approval. But in recent days, Noise says the SBA's electronic filing system has been jammed up.
3: The system, I would imagine, was getting
16: hundreds of thousands of loans being put through at the same time. So they found a way to avoid the rush by filing applications in the middle of the night. Started
3: around 11 o'clock. We had a team of people that were really happy to do it. And they would start at 11 and finish around
16: 4, and we got ours through without any problem. After the SBA approves a loan application, it goes back to the bank for closing. And this part of the process is where Nini Pamachan comes in. She normally works in marketing, but a few weeks ago, she and a few dozen of her colleagues were drafted into the PPP loan effort.
10: It kind of sprung up. You know, I kind of got, like, a few days' notice, um, and then all of a sudden... We all just kind of dove in headfirst without really knowing what we were getting ourselves into.
16: Pamachan is assigned to the inputting team, which just means when a loan is approved, she takes all the info about it from the forms and spreadsheets and types it into the official loan documents. And while she does miss her old job, she knows this one is important to the bank's customers.
10: They need this money to keep them afloat. And if I can be, you know, a cog in that wheel, then I'm proud to do that.
16: After she's done with an application, someone needs to send it to the customer. And that is where Lindsay St. Pierre comes back in. Hey, Adrian. Hey, Lindsay. How was your day? <laughs> it was um, It was busy. It's always busy. It is 10 o'clock at night, and St. Pierre is still on her computer, finalizing the details on a virtual stack of approved loan applications.
17: Um, I've done around 40. I have about... 60 or so
16: left. It's worth mentioning these loans do come with strings attached, and they only cover a couple of months' worth of expenses. Also, St. Pierre says one thing that stresses her out about this whole program is knowing a lot of small businesses that need the money won't get it. In some cases, the stakes are personal.
17: A lot of these businesses are people that either I go get my car fixed at or restaurants that I go to. So a lot of them really do hit home.
16: Do you get to tell the, the customer that they've been approved? Yes. Is it like a celebratory moment? Is it like, like you're Oprah and you're like, you get a loan?
17: <laughs> Definitely. Definitely for the first round because the funds ran out so quickly. So with that first round, telling people that they got it was amazing.
16: Since the second round of Paycheck Protection funding became available, she's been able to give more business owners good news. But in the back of her mind, she knows that any day now, the money will run out.
2: That was WBUR reporter Adrian Ma. Coming up, from school lunches to internet access, we hear how students and families are making distance learning work. Also, later on the show, a listener shares his daily routine. And we'll ask you how you feel about your state reopening. We'll be back.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. It's next. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer.
2: Vermont's largest school district is in the Northern Kingdom. And by largest, I don't mean the most students. I mean the most land. It covers more than 500 square miles. In order to deliver meals to students during the pandemic, people sometimes drive hundreds of miles a day. Independent producer Erica Heilman visits a family in Troy that has relied on those meals.
14: Mariah Moffitt is a clerk for the local post office in Troy, Vermont, and her husband is a carpenter, and they're both working through the shutdown. They have two sons, Chase and Jackson, ages 13 and 6. The boys stay home alone during the day to do online school, and Chase takes care of his brother. I was there to talk with them about meals they've been receiving from the school, which in a way means talking
10: about money and fear and uncertainty and even love. Here's Mariah. My husband and I talked, and we knew we can't let our pride get in the way right now. It was just too obvious right away that that pride of getting by on your own needed to be put aside because I could sign up through my school who was not putting it in any terms of need. Like, you could have this even if you didn't need it, that they would just come and provide these meals for your kids. And I knew right away that we do need that. That's what we needed for sure during this.
14: Have you found that food has gotten more expensive?
10: I have. I am like coupons galore, Um, I find the thrill in savings, anywhere that can get us the best for our buck. And lately, grocery shopping and trying to stretch, I am amazed, I mean, the egg prices, that alone was completely shocking. And how do I change what I can make at home or how I can stretch things when I haven't had to look at eggs as an item that we're on the higher end of the groceries that I'm buying. What's the jump in price on eggs? Oh, boy. So before this, I was getting, you know, a dozen eggs at Price Chopper for $1.89. Now those same eggs are up over $3. It's unbelievable. Week one, you're immediately worried about certain aspects. How are we going to afford having the kids eating every single meal here and boredom snacking or comfort snacking through this. And then week two, you realize now it's time for me to go into the grocery store where who knows, I could possibly either get this or pass it to somebody else unknowingly. Week three, you start seeing the bills that you haven't paid and that concern and realization that you've got to start planning for when those bills are due. School, I have sat with my son through classes and sat as he did his homework and thought, how much pressure do I put on him for this? He has his day blocked out and then notes stuck in that he needs to go outside with his brother for 30 minutes a day. He needs to remember to check that his brother has changed his clothes or that he hasn't had four breakfasts and no lunch, but that things are a routine for him as well. And I know that's an immense amount of pressure to put on him.
14: Mariah stepped away so I could talk with her son Chase for a few minutes. I asked him how he felt about getting the school meals every day delivered by the school bus.
0: So both my parents still have to go to work during this time when other kids have both their parents there to help them manage their times. So uh the bus and having this like lunch is a lot a lot more helpful for me now that I don't have to stop and make my bro- my little brother some lunch. So having um the bus that I could go out and get the lunch is very helpful.
14: What are you scared of right now?
0: What I'm scared of is having the people that don't stay at home and take this non-seriously is having them ruin the opportunity I have for next year in school.
14: What's your awareness of your parents' financial life? How, how involved are you in that?
0: Well, uh, they keep me out of it most, most part. Um, but um, obviously, I know they're part of that. That waiting till the next paycheck because I'm, I, guess, I guess in a way I'm kind of blessed that they're both still working because even if it does mean I have to stay with my brother all the time, um, we get to live a better life than some people who um, are just sitting at home and have parents that are there because they can't go to, g- go to work and get money. My awareness of money is the fact that it's low for everybody except for who have it all. So the people that have it all are the, the 1% that have all the money. And the rest of the people are the one that are low on it and are waiting for the next paycheck to come in so that they can help their kids grow up and maybe even become one of the 1%. That's the goal of everybody who wants the money. Everybody knows that around here, nobody's really, like, part of that 1%, right? Um, so we're all in, like, a common ground. So no matter how much, like... People can feel separated from each other. There's always one thing we can always um, be together on.
14: And what's that?
0: that? That feeling of waiting for the next paycheck. My family
10: needs these meals. I just feel so humbled knowing that every day that I leave, my kids aren't worried because these are familiar faces that are coming by and caring about them just like they did at school and open the notes that come in the lunch bags that say, we love you, we can't wait to see you tomorrow. I called the other day to ask for some piece of information that I'd left at home. And my son said, mom, we got strawberries today. They were so big. There were so many strawberries. And then I look at the picture, and there are three strawberries. But that was so many. That story comes from
2: Erica Heilman for Vermont Public Radio. For online learning to work, students and teachers need a fast and reliable internet connection. But dozens of communities across New England don't have that option. WBUR's Carrie Young checked in with some students and teachers in Western Massachusetts who were doing work in their cars.
14: Even though school is closed, on a given day, there are about a dozen cars lined up in the parking lot of the Sanderson Academy in Ashfield, with people using the school's Wi-Fi.
2: Yeah, it's pretty hardcore.
14: 18-year-old Natalie Shevchik is one of them. She's turned her Toyota Corolla into a mobile workstation.
10: I stay in my driver's seat. Um, I push my seat
6: all the way back, and then I prop my Chromebook on the steering wheel with like my work on the passenger
14: seat. Like many residents in Ashfield, Shevchik's only way to get internet at home is through cell service. And that's spotty at best. So in order to do schoolwork, she's had to drive to a hotspot. Most weekdays, she'll spend about three hours in this school parking lot.
6: It kind of blows my mind that people can like wake
2: up and like just open their computer, check their assignments that they have,
6: plan out their day, and like, oh, I'll do this thing, and then I'll go on a walk, and then I'll
14: do another assignment, and then make lunch. Shevchik says it's hard to communicate with teachers if she has a question when she's finishing work at home. In the car next to Shevchik most days is Tracy Pinkham, a social studies teacher at Hampshire Regional High School.
5: It's such a different way to teach, and it's a new normal, which is, you know, hard to adjust to. <laughs> but, you know, I would say my, my kids' school and my own school, they've been very understanding
14: Two of the five towns served by Hampshire Regional High School don't have residential broadband access. And Principal Kristen Smitty says some of those students don't have access to a car either. So she's having teachers assign work that can be done without a high-speed connection. They're also delivering hard copies of assignments to about 80 students.
10: They have had to refer to pages of textbooks or to write out instructions or to be available via phone. Um, Because if we only provided opportunities for students to access the curriculum with online resources, then it wouldn't be able to get to every student.
1: It's another addition to the long list of um, inequities that have been laid bare through COVID.
14: Adam Hines is a state senator from Western Massachusetts. He often represents the state at national broadband and cable policy summits.
1: Before they could go to the schools or libraries and local businesses for assignments and work, and now that's not available.
14: The reason why students and teachers can at least go to these parking lots during the pandemic is because of the Massachusetts Broadband Institute. They're setting up hotspots that can reach beyond public buildings.
9: We're not stopping. Even though the COVID crisis is, is with us, we're moving forward on all projects.
14: Peter Larkin is the board chair of the Institute, which has focused on broadband expansion over the last decade. Even still, once schools and businesses are opened up again, he says having the technology available won't solve every connectivity issue.
9: There's also the affordability issue. Even if you had it past your, your doorway, For some uh, residents, it's still a challenge.
14: Larkin estimates that it's going to be about two to three more years before most households in these western and central Massachusetts towns will have residential broadband access. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Young. It's May,
2: and that means warmer weather, hopefully, spring gardening, and ticks. This month, Taylor Quimby, host of New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast Patient Zero, is bringing us straightforward advice on tick borne disease. Today, how not to get bitten by a tick.
1: With so many activities off limits, New Englanders are increasingly looking for safe ways to shed their cabin fever and enjoy the great outdoors.
8: I just see a lot more people outside on trails and hiking and and that kind of stuff.
1: But while politely stepping off a trail to let someone pass can lower your risk of catching COVID-19, it might just increase your risk of getting something else.
8: You know, keep your social distance, but don't pick up ticks.
1: (laughs) This is Kirby Stafford, Connecticut's state entomologist, and the primary author of the Tick Management Handbook from the Connecticut Agricultural Experimentation Station. Lyme disease is just one of the illnesses spread to humans through the bite of the black-legged tick, sometimes referred to as a deer tick. But while ticks can be picked up on a faraway trail, Kirby says most people pick them up closer to home.
8: Uh, Yard work was 18 percent. Gardening was 12 percent. And play outdoors was 47 percent.
1: Which is why tick-borne disease prevention starts at the sock drawer. Clothes have to be
12: tight. The socks over the pants.
1: Maria Dukwasser is a disease ecologist at Columbia University.
12: I work on understanding how the environment affects people's risk of acquiring diseases.
1: Avoiding tick bites, she'll tell you, is all
12: about... Wearing protection.
1: Classic tick advice. Wear light-colored clothing and no exposed skin. And for the tick pros, there's one step further, a chemical called permethrin.
12: The military uses that, and we use that. And it's very efficient.
1: There are skin-based repellents, some of which you may know. DEET, picaridin, and oil of lemon eucalyptus are all approved for use by the EPA. But permethrin goes on your clothes. And the advantage of a clothing-based repellent is that you don't have to apply it every time you go outside.
12: It will stay in the fibers of your clothes, and so even if you wash your clothes, it stays there.
8: It's the same material that's often used in malarial bed nets. It comes in spray cans. You get it at sporting goods stores, things like that.
1: Given the real dangers out there, you could, of course, do more.
8: I have fellow researchers that will wear Tyvek suits, and I'm sitting there, well, I'm balancing the risk of a tick bite versus heat
1: stroke. (laughs) You obviously don't need to suit up in Tyvek or even clothes treated with permethrin every time you step into the backyard. So, here's the practical advice. Have pre-treated tick-resistant clothes on standby for high-risk outdoor activities like yard work or gardening. And when you come inside?
12: Yeah, so I would immediately put them in the dryer.
1: Studies show that just a few minutes on high heat is enough to kill the ticks.
12: And I would go on the in the shower.
1: And while you're wearing those clothes outside, you might as well do a few things to make your yard less tick-friendly. A majority of the ticks in your area are going to be on the edge of forest shrubbery or where stone walls meet your lawn. So some experts suggest creating a three-foot barrier of wood chips or gravel between high-risk zones and the places you're likely to spend the most time.
8: And it's also a psychological barrier too. This is your demarcation line.
1: And if that's too much, start simpler move your swing set or grill away from the edge of the forest.
8: Uh, just clearing a leaf litter from the edge of the lawn can reduce the number of ticks around the perimeter of the property.
1: No matter what steps you take, all you can do is lower your risk. Because no matter what you do... It only takes one if you don't find it and it's infected. That's why the single most important tick prevention measure is something you should do every day or multiple times a day. A full-body tick check.
12: Look through every part of your body.
1: For you... Tick check. Your kids... Tick check. Your dogs... <gasps> Your cats. Tick check. If this stuff seems too basic, just remember that slowing a disease can be as simple as washing your hands, or in this case, looking in your armpits.
8: And I can tell you, after over 30 years here of research, I've had very, very few tick
1: bites, and I haven't gotten Lyme disease yet. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Taylor Crimby.
2: We'll have a link with more information at our website, nextnewengland.org. Next week, part two of the series, Tick Season What to Do When You Get Bitten by a Tick. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, a story about online theater. And it's funny. Plus, the virtues of quarantine basketball. It's next.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. We're back.
2: And it's that point in the show where we hear from listeners. Last week, we asked you to share how your routine has changed since the pandemic. We heard from listener Vince Cilio, who's taking time off from work to self-quarantine for a couple months. He wrote this in an email. I took one nice motorcycle ride through the farms and forests of eastern Connecticut before I realized that one mishap would land me in the emergency room, a petri dish of corona and other diseases. Now Vince says he's sticking to house projects and puppy training. This week, we're calling on all you New Englanders out there. As your states prepare to reopen or have already started the process, how are you feeling about returning to a new normal? Leave your comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. And thanks. Many theater people will tell you that in a live production, they're used to responding in the moment if a cue is missed or if some prop is forgotten. But no one quite imagined responding to entire seasons being canceled. Now actors and directors are finding ways to adapt by producing theater online. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has the story of one Massachusetts playwright
13: and his new show. Here's the opening moment from a play in rehearsal. It's called
15: This Is Your Captain. Good morning from the flight deck. We'll be in the air today for about an hour and 20 minutes. I'll be back with an update on our arrival when we're a little bit closer.
13: Three passengers are sitting on an airplane. The wing catches fire after an explosion. Oh, my God. I think the engine exploded.
9: The captain announces to the cabin that it's not a big deal and they're going to fly on to their destination.
13: The playwright James McLinden, who lives in Northampton, Massachusetts, finished writing this 10-minute show in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic.
9: About half the passengers think that this is crazy and the plane should make an immediate emergency landing.
13: Hey, everyone. The wing
15: is on fire and we're going to blow up if we don't do something. Who's with me? Hey, it's just a glow, people. Captain says he knows what he's doing better than Snowflake here. Who's with me?
9: The other half think that there's more than one way to run an airline and they prefer the one that isn't all tied up in rules and red tape, like landing when your wing's on fire.
13: Elements of the satire have been churning in McLinden's mind for months. At the heart of it, This Is Your Captain, is a farce about the political divide underway in the U.S. And McLinden says the pandemic has only amplified that split and gave the play a deeper meaning. Everything is fine. Everything is normal. And everyone is starting to see that. This is not normal. The plane is on fire. Potato, potato. Sit down. The actors and director are all rehearsing from their own homes around Western Massachusetts. They're using Zoom, and that's how they intend to produce the show for an audience. There's a lot to sort out, like who tilts in which direction when the captain announces he's going to roll the airplane. And how will snacks get handed from the flight attendant in one Zoom frame to a passenger in another? That
10: works great. I'm going to interrupt there. Let's even do that one more time. James, how do you feel about that? Are you good?
13: I think so. Yeah, I want to see it one more time. Okay, great. Yeah, can, can somebody build in um, a, a vocal cue for me then? Because A few weeks my- into rehearsals, it became clear Zoom has its limitations. In this play, the passengers need to appear as if they're sitting in a row, side-by-side, window-middle-aisle. But you, in the audience, have control over how the frames appear on your screen, so This Is Your Captain will be filmed as a video chat and then uploaded. McLinden says writers always need to keep in mind the limitations of how audiences see their work, whether it's pages in a book, actors on a stage, or a handheld screen. So, is a Zoom production of This Is Your Captain theatre? I
9: guess I'm less concerned about the label we put on it and more concerned about does it work as the medium that it is.
13: McLindon had several other plays and readings canceled or postponed when the pandemic began.
9: The heartening thing was the way that um, theater reinvented itself almost overnight, almost literally overnight, and suddenly there were all these theaters looking for scripts that could be produced on a Zoom platform.
13: And in addition to This Is Your Captain, McLindon has a play in the Boston Theater Marathon this month The marathon in years past was 50 plays performed live over 10 hours in one day. This year, online, it's a play almost every day at noon on a video platform. So theater has found a way to keep going, McClendon says, though new full-length plays won't likely be produced in this setting. And for McClendon, the pandemic does have some familiar elements.
9: One of the jokes in in, uh, social media streams of playwrights is that we've been social distancing forever. it's, It's not new to us. Uh, you know, what I really miss the most is the late afternoon going out and getting a cup of coffee and being out in the world.
13: McClinton does get up from his desk to stretch his legs, a new break option, a game of ping pong with his son, who is unexpectedly finishing his college year at home. And on a recent walk downtown, McClinton gathered ideas for a new play about the impact of the pandemic on homeless people, who were the only ones he saw out on the street.
9: The people they could uh, conceivably uh, receive money from. Uh, just weren't there anymore. The uh, the coffee shops and other places where they hang out during the day to get warm and to get something to eat are closed.
13: It is a very troubling time for so many reasons, McClendon says, and occasionally it has been hard to focus. He hears that from other writers too. When the pandemic first hit, another joke going around on social media was how Shakespeare wrote King Lear while he was quarantined.
9: That's a lot of pressure to have to write King Lear.
13: So McClendon says maybe this isn't the time to write your great opus, whether tragedy or comedy, and the latter is what McClendon mostly writes. When theaters reopen, he imagines they'll be kept less full to maintain social distancing.
9: You know, if you write a comedy, especially with anything that you write, losing two-thirds of an audience uh, is is daunting. Um, You want people there, you want laughing, uh, and you want um, the kind of warmth and the energy that just... Builds in a in a closely packed crowd.
13: People will still enjoy the show. McClendon will keep writing plays. He says, "It will all just be different." And for now, the audience will be laughing from home.
10: Any purchases today from Sky Bazaar? You got uh, any asbestos parachutes? (laughs) You're funny.
13: For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman.
2: Last month, NBA player Jimmy Butler bought a portable hoop for his home so he could keep his skills sharp during the pandemic. He liked his new hoop so much, he bought one for every player and coach on the Miami Heat. But basketball hoops aren't so easy to come by if you're on a budget. Reporter Judith Kogan produced
5: this story for WBUR's show, Only a Game. One way to track the coronavirus timeline is by demand for goods and the difficulty of finding them. First, it was hand sanitizer, then toilet paper, then yeast and flour, then hair dye. Now, it's near impossible to buy a portable basketball hoop, the kind you put in a driveway, pouring sand or water into the base for stability. True confession here? This is no catastrophe for me. I'm five foot one and kind of a slug. Tiddlywinks is more my speed. But some years back, as the mother of three sports-obsessed teenage boys, I started shooting hoops with them in a confined concrete space just outside our back door. It was thrilling to connect in their zone. One of those sons, now a 30-year-old graphic designer in New York City, has come to quarantine with me in suburban Boston. Back in New York, he plays basketball every single day.
4: I work freelance. I work for myself, so I work alone all day. So going for the three o'clock basketball game at the gym is my one reason to leave the house.
5: Matthew and I get along fine, but he's going stir crazy. The house I moved to after my sons left home lacks a basketball hoop, and Matthew is in basketball withdrawal. So we consult the internet about purchasing a portable hoop. Reasonable ones can be found where expected Amazon, Target, Walmart, Dick's Sporting Goods. By reasonable, I mean $250 or $300. But there are zero available for pickup within 100 miles of Boston. There are places that'll ship, but there's always the caveat. It'll ship in two months. The shipping cost is equal to the cost of the item itself.
4: You can't practice baseball alone. You can't, can't really practice soccer alone. But you can just shoot jump shots all day long, and you can get that little endorphin rush Every time you see the ball go through the nylon.
5: We are allowed to walk, and walk we do. One walk took Matthew to a shuttered school where he noticed an open basketball hoop. It was either an invitation to play or set up for a sting operation.
4: I've been feeling real antsy in quarantine, and I figured I'd take my chances.
5: The sound of the ball echoes within 100 yards of the hoop. If anyone's around, we're toast.
4: Might be a short-lived basketball session. Much anticipated, though.
5: The ground is uneven and cracked. Weeds here, mud there. The backboard is plywood that's been painted white, bolted onto drainage pipes. And the hoop seems higher than ten feet. Who cares? It's all part of the charm. I take a turn. Nothing but rim. Matthew suggests we play a game of horse and reminds me how it goes. One person makes a shot. If successful, the other has to successfully make the same shot or gets a letter. H-O-R-S-E. The first one to complete the shameful word loses. Matthew goes first. Showing off with one hand. (laughs) I failed to take in the shot's full difficulty. Left hand, too. I don't subscribe to notions about birth order, but Matthew is a middle child, feisty and competitive. But when I get a basket, he seems genuinely excited.
16: Look at you. Ready for the
5: NBA. Matthew makes hard shots I cannot replicate.
4: you got to put a lot of mustard
10: on this one.
5: I take the shot and miss. Oh! Needed more mustard. Needed the strong, grainy stuff. More mustard. Matthew has to constantly remind me of the rules.
4: Because you only get a letter when you miss a shot that
5: I hit. Got it. But I don't. He'll need to remind me over and over. I set up and make the next shot. Okay, your turn. He gets an H. I wonder if he's humoring me. Matthew announces my losing score more often than I think necessary. I realize that playing basketball, Matthew is now adult and child, mentor and competitor, fantasist and realist. It's the zone where the contradictory aspects of his personality get integrated. I like that you shoot in the same spot every time. This is mom's strategy, sticking with a winning formula. While I'm getting free passes here and there, somehow his game has gone south. Oh, man. All right. H-O-R to
4: H-O-R-S. What do you think? It's getting close. We're in the fourth quarter. Are you scared? I am.
5: He calls a difficult shot. All right. From here, no backboard. He makes it. Oh, that was sweet.
4: All right. She has to hit this to stay alive.
5: No backboard? That's too many challenges for me. I shoot, and then I'm a dead horse. In a way, we were playing different games. Endorphins flooded both our systems, but for different reasons. He's building on 25 years of balletic twisting, turning, and strategizing to hear the swish of the ball in the nylon. I'm rocking dormant maternal hormones. Nonetheless, we've both won. And we've evaded capture.
4: All right, let's get out of here before the feds come.
5: He shoots a basket.
4: At the buzzer! Uh.
5: In the pandemic, nothing is certain. No timelines, no retail availability. What does seem clear, however, is that at least one guy's passion can accommodate his mother's jump shot. And that opens up unimagined doors of confinement.
2: And that's our show this week. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and The Publics Radio.